Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Anne-Louise Sarks is the Artistic Director and Co-CEO of Melbourne Theatre Company and is also the Director of the current MTC production, Bernhardt Hamlet. Anne-Louise, this is not the first MTC production you've directed, but it is the first MTC production you've directed with the AD's hat on. What kind of additional pressure does that bring? Morning, Richard. Uh, I, I mean, a lot is the truth. Yeah. I mean, it certainly felt like that to me. We've had such a banging start to the year for, for my first season as artistic director, two shows that audiences just embraced. And I really wanted Bernhard Hamlet, uh, my first show as, as a director and as artistic director, to really land with audiences. And thankfully it has. We had our opening last week and the response has been huge. It's, um, it's really thrilling. It's wonderful. Why did you want to direct this particular play and indeed why program it in your inaugural season as artistic director? I really wanted a comedy to uh, kick off um, my time as artistic director in the company. I wanted to offer audiences something really witty and smart and alive and, and fun. And I, I read this piece called Bernhard Hamlet by Therese Rebecca about Sarah Bernhardt, who is this very famous French actress. The play set in 1899. She was actually the world's first celebrity. She really built this kind of incredible profile for herself. She was eccentric. She was incredibly forward thinking. And I read the play and I just loved it. I loved how funny it was. I loved how smart it was. And it had a political heart that I really responded to. She was a very progressive woman who wanted to play Hamlet when all the men around her didn't think she should. She she had a kind of vision for change. And, and I related to that. And I felt like that was the perfect perfect statement piece for me to to start my work with the company. Now, I didn't get to see the opening of the show last week. I spent a couple of days in bed unwell, but I've been reading about the play and the production and uh, Bernhardt herself. And mm. one of the things that I'm really curious to know is how do you play with a play about theatre, um, given that the, the acting style that um, Bernhardt was known for is kind of uh, gestural and declamatory yeah. and so very different to our contemporary style. As a director, how do you play with those ideas of how theatre has evolved and what your lead character herself is trying to, to do, evolve theatre so that a woman can play a man's role, which even today people will occasionally write, raise an eyebrow at. Yeah, it certainly still gets attention, doesn't it? it it's noteworthy, even if it's not as scandalous as it was for her. Um, I, I loved the fact that this play was about theatre. It felt like a chance for audiences to peek behind the curtain, to understand a little bit more of, of what we do, which, which I love so deeply, how a play comes together, what it's like, the chaos, the silliness, the absolute joy and the truth of trying to connect to a story, which is really what Bernhardt's doing. Um, the style of Bernhardt's day was so different to us. You know, theatre goes through fashions um, like, like every art form. And so it, the play really plays with those things. It starts in a really kind of big, slightly overblown comic um, performance style 
and gradually through the play, as Sarah connects more to to the truth of the story that she wants to tell, the production follows her too and, and it sort of strips away and it becomes more and more sort of honest and raw. It's a really um, – it's a beautiful journey through through those acts and Marg Horwell, who designed the show, who is a, a an old um, friend and collaborator of mine and people would know her best from Dorian Gray, her design, um, has done this extraordinary design that sort of starts very full and eventually just strips away into the empty, um, glorious Sumner Theatre. So it's um, it's quite a ride through the show. It's, it's a really, really special work. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about the idea of Bernhardt as a figure is that we have uh, video footage of her from, from a time when film was an early, very early kind of fledgling art form. And uh, your lead actor, Kate Mulvaney, has uh, written about watching some of that footage uh, and using that as her starting point to, to explore the character. How much research for you as director? How much, obviously, your your leading lady is doing lots of research. Yeah. Um, what about you? How uh, have you immersed yourself a little bit in in the life of Sarah Bernhardt? Absolutely. Yeah. Sarah wrote um, a lot of books about her life in the theatre, uh, about her story growing up. Um, I absolutely immersed myself in her life, and it, it was such a joy to do. And I I wanted that for audiences too. You, you actually don't need to know about Sarah Bernhardt to come and enjoy this work. The work will kind of unfold all of that for you through the evening. But she's a fascinating character and she did, as you say identify that film was going to be, um, you know, this incredible form for storytelling. So she was the first actor to ever play Hamlet on film and she recorded this um, sword fight of Hamlet and Laertes and and there is a nod to that um, in the production as well. But just that, to, to identify that and, and go after it, I think it just, it's so inspiring to me. What's also fascinating is that she wasn't satisfied with Shakespeare's version of the play. Totally. She wants... Yeah. Like, as if... She's already ruffled the feathers of uh, the theatre world in the, the late 1800s by going, oh, as a woman, I am going to play Hamlet. Right. This great epic male role. Oh, and actually, I think I might commission someone to rewrite yeah. the play. Yeah, she wanted to cut the play. And that was a real... Um, that was really an, a no-no at that time. The idea that she had a vision and she wanted to sculpt the work to that vision um, was so groundbreaking. And, and that's where much of the comedy in the play comes from too, the, the sort of shock of the men around her that she was going to take on the greatest living or the, the greatest writer of, of the sort of English language. I love that about her. You know, as somebody who has um, done renovations of classic texts, who loves to sort of reshape something in their own way and trust that there will always be those other versions, you know. Hamlet and Shakespeare will still exist, whether Sarah Bernhardt tinkers with it or not. Um, I could really relate to that. So, yeah, I think it. I think it's fabulous. And she did. She rewrote the play um, with two writers and it went on to be a huge success. She was right. Now, you're certainly no stranger to contemporary adaptations, rewriting, reimagining classic theatre texts. So you're approaching the play with a a degree of sympathy and understanding in that regard from your work with Hayloft and and elsewhere. What do you think Sarah Bernhardt herself would make of your production? (laughs) Richard, I love that question so much. I, I like to think she'd be very proud of the boldness of the production and what it does 
in the Sumner Theatre. I, I feel like this is something you've never seen in, in this theatre space and um, that makes me really excited. I, I, you know, I'm sort of spoiler alert, but towards the end of the production, it really is the Sumner entirely empty. You can see the back wall of the theatre and traditionally the Sumner's kept quite contained as a theatre. You know, there's a sense that it's too large. I just tearing away all the sort of artifice and, and opening it right up and I, I think that she'd love that. I will just tell you one quick story. Kate Mulvaney, who's Sarah Bernhardt and is exceptional in the role, every night she lights a candle, opens up the biography to a page where it falls and, and sees what message Sarah Bernhardt will give her for the show each night. And it's, um, yeah, Kate's not kind of incredibly spiritual, but she really is channeling something about Sarah's energy um, in this performance. And it's, um, it's spectacular to see. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Anne-Louise Sarks, who's the Artistic Director of Melbourne Theatre Company and also is directing the current production for the MTC, Bernhardt Hamlet, the first show she's directed for MTC with her Artistic Director's hat on. Now, Anne-Louise, you just spoke about tearing away artifice and opening up the, opening up the Sumner. Mm. Is that something you're keen to do in your role as Artistic Director? That's a beautiful segue. It is, Richard. I really, uh, it's so important to me that we are embracing new voices, new perspectives and making our storytelling and the experience of being in the theatre more accessible for everyone. If we're talking about new voices then, the next production, though, is Samuel Beckett, which is about that's as true. canon as you can get. Yeah, yeah, you are pitting me on that, and that's fair enough. That is our, our classic work for the season, Happy Days, but it is re- it's being reimagined by Petra Kaleev and Judith Lucy is performing the role of Winnie, which I think is such a kind of um, electric meeting of an artist and a text. Like, there is no way that that won't be fresh and new. But that's just one of 12 incredible works in the season. And we've got an amazing piece coming up by Alicia Harris, who's an African-American writer called um, the play is called Is God Is, directed by Zinzia Kenyo and Shari Sebens. Uh, it's a, a inspired by a kind of Greek tragedy, kind of epic journey piece. Some people say it's a bit Afro-punk or a bit spaghetti western. It's a wild quest story. Uh, there's a whole range of works that um, bring those new perspectives. Uh, a piece called I Want to Be Yours, uh, which will open in a month or so, directed by Tasneem Hussain, who is our resident director. It's a piece set in London, written by um, a... a word poet, um, slam poetry, a genius of a writer about two people from different cultures finding each other, finding love. It's, um, there's there's a, a kind of beautiful spectrum of work across the season. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing a range of the upcoming productions, including the, the production of Happy Days, because I know that the Beckett estate is very fiercely protects <laughs> the integrity and tension of Beckett's play, so I'll be interested to see what Petra can do in terms of reinterpreting that. I'm really looking Looking forward to seeing the upcoming production, uh, Jackie by Declan Ferber Gillick, oh, yeah. uh, yeah. directed by my my upstairs neighbour Mark, Mark Wilson. Hello, Mark, if you're <laughs> listening. Uh, and uh, then later in the year, you are directing not one but two short plays by Carol Churchill, Escaped Alone and What If If Only. Now Churchill is 
in to my mind, she is the Patricia Cornelius of British theatre. Yeah. Yes, you've got a Patricia Cornelius production I coming do. up, My Sister Jill, yeah. which I'm really excited by, and then Churchill, whose work, when I first saw it at a Malthouse production a few years ago, I it's, it's that moment when someone flips a switch in your brain yeah. and your brain starts fizzing and you're like, it's just like, this is extraordinary writing. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary writing. And she is a prolific writer and her works are so well known and embraced over in the UK and really unusual here on our stages. And I was so surprised that we, we don't see more Carol Churchill. She has an extraordinary gift for poetry um, Escaped Alone is the first piece. It's it's four women sitting in a garden, women in their 70s talking about their life and their experiences intercut with these extraordinary speeches by a woman who has clearly survived an apocalypse, who's talking about the end of the world. So you get these sort of personal, private stories of terror or anxiety cut with these stories of really global kind of, you know, world-scale terror. Um, she's she's so smart like that and yet it's incredibly funny um, and very, very human. And then that second piece is a piece, a really uh, a micro-meditation, we call it, on grief, a really beautiful short piece of a, a woman trying to reach a loved one that she's lost who accidentally conjures a, a, a group of spirits sort of into her home Um Carol has this way of taking the sort of ordinary and allowing it to lift off into something um, heightened and and other. And I think that's what theatre does at its best. You know, it invites you into the room with all these other humans. You you have this shared experience and, and ideally you are carried away into something else. And Louise Sartes, what is the role of the Melbourne Theatre Company in not just the Melbourne theatre landscape, but the Victorian mm-hmm. theatre landscape. You are our state theatre company. How yeah. do you appeal to, reflect the needs of and work with an entire state? Yeah, it's a really great question. It, it, I think absolutely our role is, is to shape the culture of Victoria and Australian culture more broadly. Uh, and the way... I want to do that. What I am so passionate about is about telling our stories, about putting Australian work on our stages and being sure that those stories represent the the beauty and complexity of who we are as a nation. Uh, so much of the season, six plays in our season are Australian stories. Um, much of it premieres brand new writing. Um, that's our role, I think, is is to to make a statement about who we are, where we've been, which is what Sunday, our show about Sunday Read, uh, did at the top of the year and and w- who we want to be, where we're going. That That's what theatre can do. And sitting in a room and experiencing that and being part of that in the way that theatre asks you to be, I think is, um, is essential to that conversation. And to come back specifically to Bernhardt Hamlet, one of the reviews... Uh, Uh, Patricia Maunder in Limelight talked about how entertaining, intellectually stimulating and pleasurable the production is. So even when it's not new Australian writing, you're stimulating on multiple levels. You're providing entertainment, but you are also kind of poking at, at, uh, at, 
I guess, the, the status quo and tweaking and challenging, even in the guise of entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think that's that's certainly my taste coming through there. I, I really love um, anything that is pushing against the status quo or, or, or having a conversation about about who we are. I, uh, for me, all the plays in this year, 2023, n- needed to speak to something about this moment, n- needed to have a reason um, to be on in 2023 specifically. And, and um, I'm really proud that, that they have done that, but also that audiences have responded to that. And then that's my challenge for 24 and beyond, you know, is, is to, to find those plays that really will um, vibrate with the most urgent questions of now. I look forward to seeing uh, season 2024 and beyond. Uh, The current production uh, at the Melbourne Theatre Company of Bernhardt Hamlet is running until the 15th of April in the Sumner at South Bank Theatre, 140 South Bank Boulevard in South Bank, just around the corner from the NGV. You can find out more and book tickets by going to www.mtc.com.au. While you're there, check out the rest of season 2023, programmed by artistic director and co-CEO and Louise Sarks, who's been my guest this morning. And Louise, thank you so much for coming in. Richard, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My next guest is the visiting Irish artist Sean Lynch, who's here to curate a show, Desire Lines, at the City Gallery in Melbourne Town Hall. Now, Sean is not actually from County Limerick himself, but uh, his practice is based in Limerick, uh, near the Shannon Estuary. Sean, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks very much, Richard. The last time you were here was to talk about a, uh, an installation of your work um, that had been supported by the City of Melbourne. You're back with another City of Melbourne supported project but this is something that you've curated Uh, that's true yeah it's an exhibition called desire lines and it opened last night in in at city hall on swanson street in the city gallery there and it's going to run until i think the end of july time and uh you mentioned i was here last year and i've been working a good bit with the city for the last four years at this stage uh, and I met a public artwork that's still up in University Square. And uh, a lot of that project was looking at histories of the city through its public art, its architectural heritage, uh, the kind of sometimes very interesting and often daft mistakes the city makes in terms of uh, urban planning. And uh, that all led on to an invite to spend some time with the City of Melbourne's own collection, which is a fantastic thing. It's all now housed in on the third floor of the City Hall. Uh, from April time on, there's going to be public tours every day so people can go in and see their own collection. It belongs to the city and everybody that lives there. Um, and so I've had the privilege of going through 12,000 items of that collection and presenting a small selection of them downstairs. How the hell do you kind of boil down over 1,200 items into uh, one exhibition? Yeah, 12,000 12, items. 12,000, I'm yeah, sorry, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, Like, you wouldn't be counting each one of them as you're going on, you know. There's a pleasure, of course, in 
understanding uh, going down certain avenues of research and seeing some of the photo photographic collections in there, for example. So there'd be material from the engineering department uh, kept there. There was a pothole inspector of Melbourne, for example, in the 1950s. He'd go around Melbourne with a box of matches. Uh, he'd put the box of matches down on the ground beside the pothole and he'd photograph it so for scale, the, the box of matches would show you how big the pothole would be. And then he'd have to take a photograph of where the pothole was in relationship to other buildings in the city so the guys could come and fill in the pothole. And then the next year, he's out again at the same pothole because it's opened up again. So they're micro-histories of the city, but they in some way all add up to what it actually is. And uh, that's some of the material in the collection. There's uh, the kind of junket culture where one Lord Mayor meets another and they give gifts to uh, the city of Melbourne. There's a lot of work by artists who've taken Melbourne as a topic as well in their work. And so it adds up fairly quickly, 12,000 items. It's a pleasure rather than a chore. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah. And, and a fascinating creative challenge in some ways to try to, what, create a, uh, a composite portrait of the city of Melbourne through its collection. Uh, also from the point of view that I don't live here and I don't pay taxes here. <laughs> so I always believe in uh, it's a very exciting thing when you arrive to a new place and needless to say, you can have a lot of creative misunderstandings uh, because you're not as grounded as what other folk are. Um, so w one of the premises for the exhibition uh, was thinking about, you know, this expression that people have that I think, therefore, I am. And uh, maybe that could change a little bit and it could be, I feel, therefore, I am. So you, I didn't really want to think about the city structures, but to some way have more of an emotive or sentient relationship with what they, they propose, you know? Uh, it's much more exciting to go down a way you don't understand or you don't see rather than going A to B in a city structure every day. So that's one of the ideas that was a guiding light in terms of the selection of pieces for the show. Has curating the exhibition given you a, a greater sense or a stronger insight into the personality of Melbourne as a city? Yeah, for sure. Well, all the personalities of it, like uh, all the instances of every day. That's, I think, one of the very interesting things about the collection, that um, th there's a sense of... Uh, the individual in the city rather than it being one huge entity that moves along without your contribution. And, for example, there's two very beautiful film works in the show by Larissa Kosloff. Uh, one was made in 1998 and it's called Stock Exchange. Uh, so uh, she ran into the Melbourne Stock Exchange building with a camera, uh, changed the film in the toilets in there and then jumped into the glass elevator and went up and down on the facade of the building with the security workers chasing her around the place. And it's a very beautiful video, you know. Um, uh, another artist who contributed to the show is Sonia Kretschmar, and she made a poster in 1992 as part of the City of Melbourne's campaign about different types of environmental issues. 
and her poster is all about noise pollution in the city. So I was interested in these scenarios where uh, creativity comes to bear to add to the weight of the city somehow. Mm. Now, speaking of creativity, we should acknowledge the title of the exhibition, which references a kind of um, individual creativity and, and the ways that... Uh, people rebel against town planning. A desire line, I understand, is the, the kind of well-trod footpath that people take th across a park, for example, as a shortcut, yeah. following the logical route rather than the, the pre-planned, concreted footpath that has been laid out for them. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, it's quite funny because I found out yesterday that it was also the title of an exhibition in Aka in 2012, so... Uh, titles for exhibitions always come and go and people use them in different ways and I, I like that idea that it's a well-worn pattern itself you know the title has been used before <laughs> yeah yeah and now you're still in some ways an outsider at the moment you've come here uh, several times over the last four years or so but talk to us about developing a relationship with the city as a visiting artist yeah uh, th that's a, a really nice thing to propose and um, you know, uh, for example, in Ireland, there's an art scene there and uh, artists work really hard, as they do at Melbourne, to make their work and get it seen and um, moved around and everything. But one of the joys of working in the visual arts for the last 20 years is uh, y you can be sailing your ship to different places and learning about what art scenes are like in different places and life on the street and the attitudes. So a, lot of, a lot of it is also, for me, I'm very interested in cultural policy and how that's enacted in different uh, locations and how it changes over time. Um, so I had a great pen pal here for many years, a man called Nick Mangan, and uh, we'd often write to each other and then... In 2019, I got to meet him because I was coming here. So it's about having friends in every port and understanding we're all living in the one the one world and we're all growing up together. Yeah. Well, Nick's been a guest on this show a few times over yeah, the years. Great, so, yeah. yeah. Now, one of the other things that intrigues me about kind of, I guess, your curation of this exhibition, Desire Lines, and the opportunity you've had to, to look through the collection of the city of Melbourne uh, and its archives and so forth, is you get to see the things that Melbourne remembers, but you also get to uncover the things Melbourne forgets. Now, I understand there used to be uh, what a... Uh, a se there's a series of concrete casts from a what was a, a celebrity wall, a hall of fame, so people's kind of handprints in concrete, similar to things you'd see around the world, uh, footprints and handprints and so forth by celebrities and famous people. This is a collection of monuments to a, f a forgotten Melbourne in some ways. It, it is. I mean, uh, if you walk down the... Um in Hollywood, I think they have 1,500 uh, people represented in the Walk of Fame there. Uh, in Melbourne, it was, I think, 50 casts. Uh, they were um, made from 1972 on to about the early 1990s in a hardware store uh, called Burke's. Uh, no, a hardware store called McEwen's that was on Burke Street. Uh, they were bought out by Bunnings, I think. And... Uh, you can imagine the scene. There'd be the photojournalists and an interested crowd all gathered outside of the store. 
uh, I presume a Bentley or something would pull up, the door would open and there'd be a famous uh, athlete, tennis star, uh, some politicians got in, in on the act. Um, there was a NASA, a NASA astronaut as well got his hand into concrete for posterity. Uh, Piping Lane, 1972 Melbourne Cup winner, also put a horse shoe into concrete. Um, yeah, very j joyful celebration, I suppose, of uh, celebrity culture. Um, it was also quite an interesting marketing tool for the hardware store because, of course, they got a chance to show off their products. They would have sold concrete powder in the shop. Uh, the trowel for making the concrete and the timber formers were also available there. And when the store closed, uh, 40 of these casts ended up in the collection of the city of Melbourne. Uh, there's a wonderful one by Lionel Rose, uh, when he was a boxer before his music career started. So he came along and he just punched the concrete, you know. <laughs> uh, it's a nice bit of humour in it. And um, for sure, these things uh, fade away from the public realm, but they keep a kind of energy to themselves. And I think that's one of the very interesting things about the, the, the city's collection here is that... Uh, they're still somehow there, and they're, they're part of the lived life of the city, and they can evoke times that have gone and what times are like now through being on exhibition and being part of the, the life of here. The exhibition we're discussing is called Desire Lines. It opened last night and is showing until the 26th of July at the City Gallery in Melbourne Town Hall on the corner, as most Melbournians I'm sure already know, but I'll give you the details just in case, on the corner of uh, Swanson Street and Collins Street. It is free to enter, uh, and if you go to uh, melbourne.vic.gov.au forward slash kind of arts hyphen and hyphen culture, you can find the details about the City Gallery. I just recommend, it's probably just easier to Google City Gallery Town Hall and you will find the details, including the opening hours, but as I said, the exhibition Desire Lines, uh, curated by my guest Sean Lynch, is on until the 26th of July. Now, Sean, you're heading back to Ireland soon, I understand. I am. Um, I'm going to go and visit Perth first. Uh, and then we're we're back working away in Ireland, and thankfully we have a busy summer. Uh, my wife and I run a residency program in the southwest in, in Limerick, uh, so we'll welcome artists there and should get up to some development. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now you're clearly you have quite deep ties to Limerick, but you're originally from County Kerry, aren't you? Yeah, which is just around the border. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for example, it's coming to St Patrick's Day. Uh, on Friday uh, when St. Patrick visited the neighbourhood uh, I live in in Limerick, he was crossing the river and he turned around and someone had stolen his donkey uh, so he was a very cantankerous man by reputation and he refused to go to County Kerry he never blessed County Kerry with the joys of Christianity he headed back up the country instead um, so there's loads of stories about that fella around the place all the time, Richard. Well, I'm, uh, perhaps the fact that he didn't bless County Kerry gives uh, part of the, the county its its own rich culture. I thought, given that I, we started with a track by a Limerick artist, we'd uh, finish uh, our conversation with a track by an artist from County Kerry, uh, Junior Brother. Sean Lynch, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Lovely, Richard. Thanks so much. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Sally McKenzie.
uh, is an actor and writer. She is a, a graduate of NIDA. She has won an Augie Award. Uh, and she's here to talk about her new play, Way, which is on at La Mama Courthouse. As always, whenever I talk about anything involving La Mama, a very quick disclaimer, I'm the chair of the Committee of Management. It's a volunteer position. I'm not benefiting financially from promoting La Mama's work. With that conflict of interest declaration out of the way, Sally, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Richard. So this is a play about a documentary maker documenting the fact that um, homelessness is a significant issue affecting Australian women who then gets almost caught up in the story that she is trying to tell. Yes, and uh, you know, a spoiler alert, the woman that is making the documentary about homeless women over 55, which is the fastest growing demographic of homeless people in Australia, um, ends up being that way herself. Um, I was inspired on two, two counts, one by the fact that uh, five years ago I played a woman in a, uh, who was living in a car uh, who was about my age, which is the 55 and over demographic. She was living in a car and at that point in time it was for a, a Orange Sky Laundry, which is a charity that runs out of Brisbane, where they provide a free mobile service for homeless people. And I always became interested in the subject then and then when I was uh, ruminating on, uh, you know, some of my plays, or you know, particularly one called Scattered Lies, which deals with the refugee uh, situation in Australia, I deal, deal with social issues. And I was thinking about the homeless homeless women over 55 demographic. And I met with a, an old friend of mine who was down for the AIDC, which is, a, which is the um, documentary conference, which is held in Melbourne every year. And she was sort of talking about her pathway and how she'd invested this project and that project, and it seemed to me an interesting jumping point uh, for a play, a, a one-person play, I should put out there, about women over 55 who are homeless and the woman who who is making this documentary about these women becomes that way herself. It's often a fascinating way that stories are told. It's People think, I have an idea, but it's not quite enough. And then something completely random, completely separate occurs. And you go, if I splice these two things together, suddenly there is meat to the drama. There is a structure that, that just falls into place. Yes. I mean, anybody who's wrestled with the blank page, as playwrights do, as screenwriters do, as writers do... Um, we'll, any, we'll find that you know the blank page and where you go from that. It's all about the form, F-O-R-M, in uh, playwriting. Uh, screenwriting, which I've done a significant amount of myself, screenwriting's very much about it's already a predetermined uh, paradigm out there, but uh, what I love about playwriting is that it's open slather. You know, It can be based on the three-act paradigm or it can be episodic. It can have all these other aspects to it, and that's what's so liberating about it, but also can be hard to wrestle with because you haven't got any sort of groundwork for it. Yeah, so without the framework, you can sometimes flounder. Yeah, absolutely, over many drafts. <laughs> um, but we're happy with what we've resolved uh, in way W A Y, and as the woman in, in the in, in in the play says, ways uh, spelled W A Y, lost way, my way, no way, pathway. Um, is that uh, we have a woman, a central character, who is making a documentary about women over 55 who are homeless. Along the way, she she's trying to wrestle with the broadcasters and then goes through these various um, uh, points of trying to get the film across the line, dealing with commissioning editors that come and go, that is, you know greenlight the project, but then the next one comes in and it's not green, you know, says, no, I want to start from ground zero. And and she invests all her money and in it, plus her mother's money, and ends up um, 
well, not well. On she will, she stays with a friend. But the common story is couch surfing, which is not a glamorous thing at all. And ultimately, women will be asked. Well, in this case, we're dealing with women. But uh, sad to say that um, uh, one in two hundred Australians um, find themselves without a place to sleep every every night, and that's talking about the males, men, or you know, across genders as well. But, um, yeah, so that was a jumping point. And we, I play a number of characters. I play um, a woman who lives in a car. Um, I play a woman that lives on the street, um, also a woman who's, who's in a woman's refuge and um, another woman who eventually ends up on the street. So uh, she does go through his couch surfing and those sorts of things. So I play five characters across the 75 minutes. Um, and we do follow this woman's story and it is interlaced with uh, the woman, uh, scenes from the woman's documentary. Lynn's making this documentary and so we actually see – we've shot some some really evocative footage, I think um, – and they play throughout the piece, and we're of course uh, supported by some wonderful sound um, by uh, David Fransky, who's who's pretty well known in the um, theatre making scene in Melbourne. Um, he's he's, uh, he's he's provided some wonderful sound design for the piece. Yeah. Now, Sally, before your introduction to this topic through the the character that you played, what five years ago, you said it, um, in an ad. Yeah, you've clearly done uh, research and work into the issue of uh, the fact that um, women over 55 are the, the largest growing kind of uh, number of homeless people in Australia. Before then, did you have any idea of the 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 uh, just how challenging and how significant this issue was for older women? No, Richard. I, the magnitude of it, I mean, they talk about 240,000 women 55 and over who find themselves with insecure housing across Australia right now because um, you can't see them. You know, they're not on the streets generally. They are in caravan parks. They are couch surfing. Uh, they're living in tents. I mean, we know we've got a huge rental crisis. Uh, you hear horror stories all the time. Uh, that's particularly prevalent at the moment. And no, I had no idea. It was I played an, uh, this woman in this ad or, you know, donated my time to it, which is a really fantastic cause, and it was brought to my attention. And, and since 2018 and now five years on, um, there's been an increase of 31% of women in that dem- demographic. It's linked to things like no superannuation. It's linked to things like being primary carers of then of their kids and then later on their parents. Um and uh, so it, it's the, and the root cause is poverty. And I've since spoken to women. I mean, I did. I've done direct research for the play, uh, but I've since spoken to women just generally, and they'll say things like, "Oh, I, you know, they'd, they'd fallen out with their partner. There was no money there. They'd been with them for for decades. They were looking for a place to rent. They had to go, you know, um, regional. They arrived to have a look at the place, and there was another fifteen to seventeen people in the women in exactly the same situation as they were. I you know, on the poverty line and nowhere to stay. Yeah. It's an incredibly grave situation. How do you dramatise something like that without uh, making the work didactic? <laughs> that was right on my... The forefront printed on my head, Richard. I do not want to write a didactic work. I don't want to write a teacherly, look, listen here, up, and, you know, I'll give you a lecture. So the way you do it is... Well, I hope that we've been achieved is through... Um, through multi-characters, so uh, so we've got a number of characters in different situations. 
Um, I think there's an inherent interest in the three major characters that we present, apart from the woman making the documentary, to hear their stories. And as I say, it is based on direct research. A little bit of it is verbatim, but generally speaking, it's 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 certainly based on research, but they're dramatised. You try to make it as, as lively and engaging as, as possible, so it's changing all the time. You try to get the audience to be engaged in the characters. Um, you try to be at your best possible... Uh, practice in terms of your performance I've been performing um, you know professionally since the end of 1977 way back then um, went through NIDA with some luminaries I'll just put that put that out there um, and I've worked across many of the the, the broad and commercial stages in Australia um, and so I've got my my kind of practice to base things on and hopefully that will also help the piece yeah Talk to us about drafting the work um, and finding the voices for the, the five different characters who are presented in it, finding their distinctive and unique voices rather than it being your voice or just a voice. Well, uh, you know, interview, you couldn't do a show like this without um, going out and seeking some direct uh, interviews with, with people that are in that sort of situation. That was not easy. I went through many various um, uh, support mechaniz- uh, organisations and and found some women to talk to. I went to on the streets and found women to talk to, uh, interviews, uh, talk to them, listen to them, uh, go away think about, do some other research online that talks about statistics, et cetera, or common experiences, so commonality research. Um, And then you write a distinct voice for people, as as other dramatists do, and uh, you find an authenticity to that voice. And then in terms just on a technical level for yourself as as the actor... Uh, you 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 try to find what's unique about that person and the way they speak and their mannerisms, and then you try to bring that into it with another bit of technical level. Do they talk through the nose? Do they not open their mouth? Or you know a range of things, and you you, you look for authenticity. Being both the playwright and the performer for the work must give you an added advantage in that regard, uh, as opposed to uh, being an actor uh, presented with a script and trying to find the truth in the character that you are playing. You already knew who these characters were before you began rehearsal. That's true. Uh, However, I don't think I have relied on, say, the the actual voice of the character, like just the way they listen. I'm not talking in a sort of um, metaphoric way, just the way they, they talk. Um, I I think that's true, but it's a double-edged sword, to be honest, Richard, because if you're the writer of a work, you're also worried about how it might be received. So you've got this double thing. You're kind of like, oh, is it going to be all right? Is it going to work for the audience? Um, but there certainly, yes, you have a very much of an inside view into it. And, of course, you know, it's not just me. It's Sean Me, uh, who's a fantastic stage director. We've been located up at north in Brisbane for decades um, and, you know, as I mentioned, David Fransky and Claire Springett is doing the lighting d- design. So you're bringing many elements to bear on a work. Sally, uh, you mentioned um, studying at NIDA and uh, graduating from NIDA in, in the 70s. How has the theatre industry changed in the, the time you've been working in it? Uh, yep. Yeah. Well, it certainly has, Richard, because when I came out, it was very much based on, you know, ye olde model, uh, you know, most of the major theatre companies here, when I say major, the, the heavily subsidised ones, your Melbourne Theatre Companies, your Queensland Theatre Company, used to be called Queensland Theatre Company, now it's Queensland Theatre Company, um, Sydney Theatre Company, etc., all based on the, the UK 
repertory model. Um, we had, of course, I worked with people like John Sumner back in the 80s when I did major roles at the Melbourne Theatre Company, but then left to go and work at somewhere else. So um, it was based on the, the UK model, and they pr primarily did um, British plays. And, they, you know, they have, but to their credit, Melbourne Theatre Company always did have this, um, this strand where they did look at, did do Australian plays, and I did Australian plays back then in the 80s there. Um, so I would hope, and I have done a, a research paper on this. I got a Churchill Fellowship, and I did it on developing playwrights and their plays. And it was specifically looking at the way you can develop playwrights across, you know, interviewed many people in the UK and the US um, for that. And and you know, we we can, uh, generally that also the statistics of what what our major theatre companies were doing in terms of UK product or US product as against uh, Australian stories. Um, so I got some statistics out of that, and there, yes, and I and I listened to to Sarah, your guest this morning, and she was talking about um, Sarah. No, uh, she was talking about the what the MTC were doing. I beg your pardon, uh, and Louise. And Louise, I made a mistake there. Sorry about That's that. Okay. Um, and she was talking about the, what the MTC were doing, and yes, yeah, they, they've got their slate of Australian plays out there. So I just the short answer is Richard. Hopefully, we're doing more Australian works. <laughs> Um, but it, th we're also we're also it, the cultural diversity of the works that we're doing. I mean, when I when I came out of NIDA, I mean, there was somebody in our year where they suggested that he changed his name to be more anglicised. I mean, that that was de rigueur in those days. They didn't want people that had different, you know, the, the cultural diversity was not on the on the agenda. That would certainly not be the case now. No, it's tipped the other way, which is great. Yeah, and other changes we've seen too are the fact that yes, people like um, uh, Anne Louise running theatre companies, which used to be the domain of men, for yes. example. We've yep. seen, particularly over the last ten, fifteen years, a, a, a kind of a correction of the gender kind of balance, which used to be so skewed towards men in uh, male playwrights, male directors, male artistic directors. We've certainly seen a kind of uh, a much more equitable relationship there. Uh, and as you say, we're we're seeing so much new Australian work. Um, when you're premiering a new work like this, like uh, Way, which uh, is showing at La Mama Courthouse from the 22nd of March until the 2nd of April, what hopes do you have for, the, for a play beyond just getting its season up and running? I'm hopeful we could... You know, it's not going to be an easy sell, Richard. It's not a musical. Um, it's, not going to, it's not going to attract a broad market. It's also going to be a little bit tricky because, you know, as you say, how do you make it not didactic? How do you make it interesting? How do people get people – you don't want to just be preaching to the converted. Converted, But we'll hopefully maybe get a bit of touring. I'll, you know, I'll be applying for some touring. Um, in terms of it's infinitely tourable, there's only one performer and we've got – we've built a set – had a set built um, that, so that we could tour it. Um, so I would hope that we could meet meet, uh, meet a broader audience um, and also take it further afoot and and potentially return it to to somewhere have a fantastic like La Mama who so you know has 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 stamped there they you know they're very much part of the development of Australian playwrights in Australia yeah and I have to say um, from an audience perspective it's always a delight to be in an intimate venue whether it's La Mama whether it's Theatre Works um, uh, whether it's um, I don't know uh, the uh, the old Fitz uh, up in Sydney for oh, yep. example um, to see something about the intimacy of 
seeing performance in a venue where you could almost reach out and touch the performer. There's something <laughs> magical there. There's something magical there and there's something very frightening for the performer. Yes. Because you can You can see tell when the audience are not engaged. They're scratching their ears or their you know, their mobile decides to vibrate and you can see them flick around it with etc. It's um yeah, because you that notion of the disengagement that you get, you know, you go into a space and 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 for that amount of time you you, you sort of um, put aside your realities and you're in the reality of the theatre can be very easily broken in an intimate space. But having said that, yes, there's a, this bond, it's, it's this, this proximity to the audience that is, you know, it, it, it allows a, a work not to have to be the you know, point of delivery, you know, way up there. And having played uh, theatres, great theatres actually, you know, the, the Opera House, the Drama Theatre there in, um, and the various ones, the Sumner here, etc., uh, you know, there is – it does – your point of delivery is – and your, your the level of your performance. I'm not going to talk about size of performance because there's still an internalisation process that goes on for any size of perform any size of the, the auditorium. But, yeah, it is it's, – it's a fantastic intimate space with a very high ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Sally McKenzie, who is the playwright responsible for Way – uh, she is also performing in the work a new play running from the 22nd of March until the 2nd of April at La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Not La Mama HQ. If you go there, you're going to the wrong venue. Pop around the corner. You don't want to make that last-minute dash, as I have had to do once or twice in my life. Uh, for more information, go to lamama.com.au to book tickets to see Way, written and performed by my guest, Sally McKenzie. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>